want to hear more about life from a Catholic perspective, Ave Spotlight is a new weekly podcast where you'll hear from special guests about culture, current events, and all things Catholic. Walk away with a better understanding of your faith and how to live it in the world today. Check it out at AveMariaPress.com and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This is Leonard DiLorenzo on Church Life Today. Thank you for joining us for the second part of my two-part conversation with Daniel Philpot, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. We've been talking about projects of reconciliation in international settings, and we'll continue that here, but we will also talk about the possibilities for reconciliation in the church after the sexual abuse crisis and Christians promoting reconciliation in the public square. Dan Philpott, thanks for staying with me here on Church Life Today. Great. Great to continue the conversation. So in our previous episode, we were starting to talk about some of the countries that have engaged in broad processes of reconciliation, where, as you were mentioning, Rwanda, Uganda, people have to live in the same space together. And this is the work of moving back towards, not moving back towards, but trying to broker some kind of right relationship after incredible atrocities. So I was wondering if you could help to uplift for us, maybe speak on one of those two examples, or if there are other examples that you'd like, about these, what these countries have undertaken, people in these countries have undertaken, to seek this form of reconciliation, and to what end those processes have taken them. Yes. Well, in fact, this uh, task of confronting the wounds of the past has become very prevalent in global politics in the last half century mm. or so, really beginning around the 1970s. And You've had a whole wave of countries that have made a transition from dictatorship to democracy, but others from civil war or genocide to some kind of nascent peace settlement, as well as countries that are developed democracies like Australia and Canada, who uh, have also tried to confront the past of, you know, like how native peoples were treated Mm -hmm. decades earlier and so forth. So you've had tens of countries who have been through this uh, kind of process and certain kinds of ways of dealing with the past have emerged. One of the most common is what is known as the Truth Commission, and there have been over 40 of these. And this is a national effort to try to come up with a record of the truth about past injustices, a kind of national record for everyone to see. And the idea is to get the truth on the table, and if possible, that might lead to some you know, healing forms of acknowledgement for victims and other things. But getting the truth on the table is commonly thought to be a very important task. Another uh, major goal, especially of um, human rights community and international lawyers, has been trials. So to get get the bad guys in the in the dock and try them and give them just punishment is has often been a major task. And the International Criminal Court has come out of that um, thinking. Other things include reparations. The political apology has become much more common in the last few decades of national leaders issuing apologies for the past. And then I would say, at least in some places and noticed by some people, is the practice of forgiveness Hmm. um, is common as well. And behind all these new practices are certain visions. And there's one vision, which is the vision, I would say, of the international community, diplomats, international lawyers, human rights workers, and so forth which is really um, based upon restoring the rule of law and then pride of place is this dream of kind of judicial punishment that the dictators and the 
war criminals and so forth would not go scot-free, but there would be the justice of a fair trial and then ultimately bringing them to account. And I think that's very important. But one of the things that I've noticed and noticed in my personal work as an activist, but also studying it, is that religious leaders have also been involved in these places. So in addition to the guys in the suits, you have the guys in the robes and the funny hats. And the, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's an interesting in terms of politics. We've you know, kind of thought that politics has become secularized here mm-hmm. in, in the West. And But yes, and you've got Archbishop Tutu in South Africa, Archbishop uh, Harardi in Guatemala, and many places. Um, Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, uh, Jewish leaders are very involved in the conversation as public figures. Often they're like the eminent persons who are on the truth commissions. And then they, in, in addition to that, they just speak to their own people. In religious countries, that's particularly important, what they're hearing from their religious leaders. Well, by and large, uh, religious leaders have had a different message than these, um, than the kind of international community message. And their most common message is reconciliation. And in the Christian gospel, that's, of course, is a very central concept, God's reconciliation of the world to himself. And they're saying, well, this is what we need in the wake of these past injustices from the war or the dictatorship or what have you. And sometimes that has kind of clashed or come into argument with the more rule of law, judicial punishment vision. Now, not necessarily exclusive. I mean, sometimes that is also affirmed by the religious leaders. Yes, we need accountability. Yes, we need democracy and rule of law. But they also speak about things like forgiveness and healing and reconciliation. And it's a different language. Yeah. And it's a different paradigm. Well, I know in an article you wrote for America Magazine back in, I think it was February of 2019, you were writing about the abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, and you gave a little bit of a, of a sketch of some of what you were just talking about here at the beginning of that, that article to talk about the work of religious leaders in um, international settings to bring about this vision of reconciliation. And you wanted to suggest that this is perhaps we can draw from some of this work and some of this vision to think about healing in especially the church in the United States in the wake of sexual abuse crisis the misuse and abuse of authority. Can you help us to think about and imagine what reconciliation could look like in the church in the wake of her own scandals? And I'm only asking you this because you wrote about it. I wouldn't just, <laughs> I wouldn't just drop this question sure, on you. Sure, yeah. yes. Well, this I was stimulated to think about this in this latest round of public conversation and debate and often very uh, searing uh, regarding the uh, church abuse in the wake of revelations about uh, former Cardinal McCarrick, and then there was the Pennsylvania grand jury report. All of a sudden, this was just flooding the the media again, and uh, we're hearing all about it. One day uh, in mass, the priest challenged the people there to said that lay people should step up and, you know, be part of the solution and bring what they know and what they've been thinking about to, to the problem. Then Notre Dame did the same. They offered a grant competition for faculty to bring their expertise uh, to uh, to the abuse crisis. So this got me thinking. And as I looked at the responses, I thought, well, that looks an awful lot like the kind of international community response where so much of the uh, response has been driven by the lawyers and uh-huh. by the media and to some degree by, by the therapist. And all of them have very good things to offer. I mean, there's, it's essential. I also want to say the church has done some very important things. It has made some important progress here in the U.S. There was the Dallas process in the early 2000s that has given us some, uh, what is it called, the zero tolerance policy mm-hmm. and uh, strong mechanisms for accountability and safeguards. All of that is essential. But I thought, well, has this really healed the wounds mm-hmm. and 
I've got I, I began to think about victims and all the all that they had, had suffered and so many victims are coming forth and saying we really don't feel that um, the wounds have been healed and that we've been acknowledged or paid much attention to. And then with the McCarrick thing, it, it, it struck me that there were still a lot of deeply, deep, unhealed wounds, yeah. uh, victims who hadn't been acknowledged, maybe also a lack of, um, you know, fully coming forth with the truth. Do we know the whole truth about all that has happened? And every time another kind of scandal emerges, it tends to underline that we don't, that, you know, we, we didn't find out the whole truth. And maybe also there hasn't been adequate accountability for those who have perpetrated these abuses in the church. And so all of those amount to unhealed wounds, but also it strikes me that there's something systemic here that really pervades the whole church. And that if you look at just one part of it, you kind of miss the story that the wounds are all interconnected and it really you know pervades the whole church such that many there have been many uh, Catholics who have left the church. And it's one of the most common reasons cited for the kind of exodus from the church that has been yeah. charted by organizations like the Pew Research Center and so forth. And so I began to think, well, maybe there needs to be something systemic, holistic, and that addresses wounds. Well, that sounds a lot like what the religious leaders that were saying in the national processes that I had studied around the world for dealing with the past. Now, obviously, the church has you know, not had a genocide or a dictatorship or something like that. But sex abuse is a serious thing. It's a, it is a crime. It's a kind of serious violation of the victims. It is widespread. Mm-hmm. And I think the, in addition to being a kind of, sometimes a kind of secular legalistic uh, language, it also seems to me kind of piecemeal that there's a sense that it's driven by, by crises. And so something like the McCarrick thing will come up and then it'll be all over the media. Then the uh, church leaders will then be saying, well, oh yes, we've got to do more and we've got to take this seriously, another round of apologies and so forth. But then it all kind of dies down again. Yeah. And we move on to the next crisis, the right. pandemic or what have right. Well, is there a need for dealing with this in a way that involves addressing wounds that are systemic and that really comes out of the transformative heart of the church, which is the Eucharist and, you know, restoration of right relationship and uh, confronting wounds and seeking to restore right relationships in a holistic, systemic way? Well, that is Eucharistic justice, Hmm. what we talked about in the last episode, the justice of restoring right relationship that um, is at the heart of uh, the founding of the church. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. This is the second part of a two-part conversation with Daniel Philpott, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. We've been talking about justice, forgiveness, reconciliation. What do you think a process might look like for the church to take that Eucharistic vision of justice and actually make it work systemically, holistically for us starting now into the years and decades to come? Really, I you know, I would love that question you had. Has this really healed the wounds? That seems to be the driving question. So this process yes. would be to get to a positive response to that question. And yes, the wounds have been addressed, have been healed in some way. What might that process look like? Do you yes. Think? Well, that's a good question and a question I've been asking myself. Hmm. Last year, last fall, I had a knock on my door from uh, Dr. Katharina Wester-Horsmann, a visiting moral theologian from Germany who was here on sabbatical here at Notre Dame last year. And she had had the same idea of, of looking at the Truth and Reconciliation 
litigation processes. And she's somebody who's been tracking and thinking about and writing about the abuse crisis for many Mm -hmm. years, motivated originally by the fact that she had a close friend who had been abused. And she felt that that person really hadn't had a very um, adequate response and uh, healing. And so somebody had told her about my work. And so we teamed up and then we applied to Notre Dame for one of these grants and were awarded one. And so we're going to be putting together a consultation of about 30 people from different walks of life, religious leaders, lawyers, experts on truth and reconciliation commissions, victims, theologians, to kind of think together about that very question is yeah. what what lessons um, a reconciliation-oriented process might have and the lessons from the national uh, processes. One thing I would say is there are some in the church who have taken a, an approach that is based on this kind of spirit and this theology and this idea, and that is a few people in the church who are doing what is called a restorative justice approach towards the sex abuse crisis. And what they do is it's victim-centered. They seek to find and identify victims who are interested in healing. And then on a very local level, they bring them together in these kinds of reconciliation circles with members of the representatives of the church, maybe family members, maybe those who are involved in it in different ways. Now, you might ask, does the perpetrator come? Yeah. Generally not. That's a kind of a bridge too far. Now, in a lot of the national processes, that did happen. Victims did confront perpetrators for different reasons. They've seen that as a, you know, not quite ready for that yet. Yeah. But still, it is a restorative approach, a healing approach involving a kind of empathetic listening to victims from others who have been involved in it different ways, usually somebody there who represents the church. And these um, kinds of reconciliation circles have started and have started to take place. A major center of it is Minneapolis, where there has been a lot of um, problems with abuse in the past. But the current leadership is very supportive of these processes. So we have Archbishop uh, Hebda, who is very supportive of this. There are some others on the ground who are really taking the lead and um, doing these kinds of circles. And then it's starting to spread to other parts of the church as well. So this is on the local level, very concentrated, localized um, processes, but they are doing this kind of more healing approach. And I think with some real success too. Now, what that is not is the whole church or on the kind of holistic level. And so that's where we're going to be thinking together about this. So what might that look like? I don't know. Could there be a truth commission for the church? Yeah, that that actually makes me think when you were talking before about truth commissions in some of these international settings, that that seems to be something that's been called for within the church to get everything out. Like everything needs to get out so we can know exactly what has taken place, the abuses, the misuse of authority. Because as, as you mentioned, it just seems like, well, is that everything? And no, it's not everything. It's not everything. So how important do you think that might be for the church to to have, I don't know if it's a truth commission or something like that, like a real reckoning with the histo- with the history, with what's actually happening, who's a who's a part of that? Yes, well, to say you know, should there be a truth commission for the church? That's definitely an outside the box kind of <laughs> yeah. crazy idea. Yeah. And uh, you know, most people, if you ask them, you know, they would say, well, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. It's mm-hmm. something that hasn't really been on the table. There have been a couple of other people who have 
mentioned it. There's um, Dr. Jennifer Hasselberger, who represented uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis uh, Archdiocese, ultimately came out and kind of spoke out uh, courageously against the abuses there. But she has also floated the idea. I think it was back in 2014. But anyway, it, that is, it's definitely outside the box. I don't know whether that might something like that might actually occur. But let's look at um, take a step back and say, well, what is the kind of thing that it, that would try to accomplish? So what I would say is I do think that would be great value, great healing value to having a kind of comprehensive airing of the truth about the abuses. And now that's not obvious. You know, in the past in the church, there's been this doctrine of uh, scandal. And oftentimes, it, I think the church's um, theology has taught that when something happens of a kind of scandalous nature, it's not necessarily something that we want to be public. And in many cases, that might be the right attitude. We don't necessarily want everything of a kind of you know sordid nature to be to be aired publicly. Sometimes it might be better to have it behind the scenes. But with the sex abuse uh, crisis, I think it's something different, that I think this is a kind of wound, first of all, that has become public and that is has produced widespread scandal and alienation and mistrust among the laity in the U.S. and in so many other countries. And I think there's a lot of mistrust that comes from people feeling like that there's so much that hasn't been told, a sense that there's so much that has been kind of um, kept under wraps. And it just seems that there are continual, even in the last few years, there have been the revelations from Chile and Latin America, mm-hmm. and Pope Francis has tried to deal with that um, through some stops and starts. And, and after a while, we want to say, you know, whenever one of these revelations occurs, we ask, well, how much more is there that right. we don't know? How right. much more is there kind of under the rock? And so there, I think there could be great value to kind of getting it all out in the open. Now, there, there are questions to be answered. Does that mean, you know, naming the name of everyone who has done an abuse? Well, maybe that's a tough uh, question that I think needs to be confronted. I can see issues on both sides. You know, something like the South Africa uh, report, interestingly, by and large, didn't mention many names of perpetrators. It gave a kind of detailed account of the patterns of abuses, how many there were, um, what kinds of things people suffered. So, you know, there are questions of practical implementation that, you know, there are you know, people could go either way on, there are good arguments about, um, and would have to be sorted through. But something like a kind of comprehensive airing of the truth, I think, could be of great value and could really enable the church to move on. I think that's what happened, say, in South Africa after apartheid, was by having a national record of the truth, you had a kind of indisputable record of this is what happened, and Nobody can deny it. And this is one of the things that allows dictatorships to continue, for instance, that Mm. they can continue to kind of deny and to lie, to kind of hide behind it and say, I wasn't involved or I wasn't responsible. But when the truth is all brought out, then you can't hide under the lies anymore. It's possible to build a new regime, a new society, you know, built on the truth about the past. Right. So moving on looks like constructing something new yes, from there. Yeah. That's right. On the basis of the truth. On the basis of the truth. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. My guest is Daniel Philpott, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. This is the second of a two-part conversation we're having on justice, forgiveness, and reconciliation. As you're talking about this and the sort of potential for healing and reconciliation in the, in the church, I'm also thinking about the need for reconciliation and healing in 
this country in the United States. And I think especially about the more recent bubbling up of awareness, perhaps, of racial injustice. I don't want to say like the recent racial injustice, because that's not the point. The point is there has been racial injustice. Yes. But as you were talking about before, it has made the news. There has been video footage of some of the the accounts of this. And so it's in the public consciousness now. Will it stay there? We don't know. Should it stay there? Yeah, it should. And there needs to be some kind of reconciliation. So how can we, you know, when we're talking about the church, you can take some of this gospel vision of reconciliation. It seems like this is the place for it. But is there a way in which this gospel vision, this biblical vision of justice can help us to think about the healing of a nation that has a history of racial injustice? Yes, it's a very good question. And I you know, don't want to say I have ready answers. I think the first thing that the whole... Um, George Floyd episode and everything that has come out of it did for me was just kind of stop me in my tracks with a kind of silence and yeah. not sure how to proceed ahead and just trying to do a lot of listening and hearing of, of so many voices. So I would say a couple of things that kind of cut in different directions. One is that I think it reveals that racism is a major society-wide unhealed wound that continues to persist and fester and work itself out in in uh, actual racism um, today. So Archbishop Gomez, president of the U.S. Bishops Conference, said that racism is our original sin and it's our mm. uh, unhealed wound. And I think that it is something that, in my view, we've never really come to terms with definitively as a society. And this is partly from studying so many other societies that have tried to confront their past. And um, I don't think we've ever done that really um, in a kind of deliberate nationwide explicit way, whether that, whether that might involve a kind of official accounts of the truth or a, an apology or a set of reparations or what have you. Right. And so there has been lots of progress in racial relations in many ways, lots of lack of progress. And of course, many people are very committed to racial justice. But as a society, in a kind of collective sense, that's one thing is I think that there hasn't been a kind of uh, reckoning. Mm. On the other hand, the, the thing that kind of cuts the other way is I've been kind of dissatisfied with some of the uh, responses. There's what might be called the cancel culture wave of um, you know firings and dismissals and uh, newspapers um, not wanting to kind of tell the whole story or yeah. to apologize about headlines and that kind of thing. And then also the kind of wave of um, tearing down of statues. Yeah. And that's an interesting big issue in itself that has a lot to do with our historical memory. Okay. That's what statues are all about is remembering, right? And uh, But the wave of kind of uh, destruction, I think, um, ha- has not been helpful. So that just raises the question, what are some constructive and um, genuinely healing ways to take seriously the ongoing wound of uh, racism and systemic racism. Yeah, and, and going back to the the point before about something like Truth Commission, the, the importance of truth-telling and having a, a real record. In previous conversations I've had, even on, on this show, we've talked about the importance of testimony and actually that the testimony in many cases of these of racial injustices, the history, the the record of racism has been there. It's just that the testimonies haven't been heeded. And one of the differences now is actually the ubiquitous nature of the camera. Like you can see, yes. here it is, the footage yes. of one of these instances that actually speak to an entire history of a, a of kinds of behavior. What role does testimony have? And it's not just testimony here. It has to do with actually the reception of testimony, it seems. Have you seen this in other places where it's the movement towards a a way of receiving and actually listening to the voice of those who can speak the truth? Yes, I think listening is a big, is a very big point. And yeah, I think testimony is powerful. And what the George Floyd 
video did for us was to kind of put it in our face and show us here is what is happening. Yeah. Now, there's no doubt that, you know, in our schools, we learn about racism and Jim Crow and the Civil War and slavery and so forth. But there's something very different about that and, you know, hearing the testimony of people who have suffered it. Yes. But as you say, there's the, the, the other side of it is is being in a posture of listening or being ready to hear it and may recognize whether in some sense I have been indifferent to it. And maybe there's some wounds on my heart and, and our heart are the ones who, ones who hear this and who are not the victims, who maybe are just bystanders and members of the society. So it's a being ready to kind of hear something which may be hard to hear, which we don't want to hear, but that these kinds of things do occur and continue to occur regularly yeah. in our society. Yeah. Maybe as a, as a closing uh, question here, as we're running out of time, I'm just thinking about this vision of justice and reconciliation that you're, you're giving us, which is based in your scholarship, but it's also, it's conversant with the Christian tradition, right? It's, you're a scholar and yet a Catholic scholar who's, who's trying to see a wider a wider vision than may be put out there more generally. What are the possibilities you think for Christians, Catholics especially, to kind of lead this vision of, or this movement of reconciliation, these works of reconciliation in a public space where you Mm -hmm. don't have agreement about belief, where you don't have believers, you know, of the same stripe together? Yes, it's a very, very good question. And um, it gets to the question of how Christians speak in the public realm. Yeah. And, um, You know, on one hand, I'm very big on Christians, um, you know, should be open about who they are, why they believe, and what the basis for these things are is. On the other hand, we live in a society where that is often um, ends up being kind of one side of of the culture war. And, you know, interestingly, in South Africa, there was a big debate about this because um, Archbishop Tutu was very – he was the head of the Truth Commission. But he would show up in his robes and his uh, cross, pectoral cross, and he would – there was one interesting episode where he wanted to begin it with a prayer. Well, he was beginning each session with a prayer. Well, after one session, the truth commissioners, other commissioners pulled him aside and said, you know, this is a public proceeding. You know, yeah. you can't begin it with a prayer. This is a public legal proceeding. And so he he kind of finally reluctantly agreed. And so he came to the next hearing and he began it and just announced it in a very formal way. And But after a minute, he said, no, I, I can't do this. Please bow your head. And he began it with a prayer. So, you know, it, it gets to the question that Christians, uh, we believe that God's reconciliation of the world is, um, you know, it is the reconciliation of the whole world. Mm-hmm. And um, it can't, uh, you know, it's um, everything in, in the world is under God's, um, you know, creative and redemptive activity. And so if we see, you know, terrible injustices in the world, we want to say that that should be kind of folded into, you know, that great cosmic redemptive work. And you yeah. can't really, you don't really want to separate it. It seems kind of artificial. On the other hand, there's the question of how we uh, how we speak and how we articulate it. And there, I think maybe it's not so much hiding our light under a rock as it is building bridges with people of other ways of talking about things and other religious faiths and of secular faiths. And maybe the strategy there is a dialogue that finds analogs in other traditions. Because a lot of these practices you can also make sense out of in natural terms and secular terms. There's a kind of we could talk we just talked about the benefits of forgiveness last mm-hmm. time, the healing benefits, the rega- regaining of agency. And a lot of that can be described in secular terms. A lot of um, people in psychology understand it. But then there 
years, people in other faiths often have similar teachings in their traditions. And so what I would say is let's try to find a, a deep meeting of the traditions, find a common ground with people who believe similar things from other perspectives. And then, you know, and sometimes things we believe um, could be articulated maybe in a more general humanistic sort of way, sure. particularly in the public realm, if it's a political proceeding and that sort of thing. And yet um, Christians would not uh, deny their own <laughs> right. reasons for right. for holding that and entering into that consensus. That makes a yeah. lot of sense to me. Well, Professor Philpott, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for spending it here with us for two episodes on Church Life <laughs> today. This is the end of our second. So well, thank, thank you. you. It's a privilege to talk about it. And thanks to all of you for joining us. If you'd like to check out our first episode, please go to our podcast at Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?